Welcome to the podcast of Medora Pentecostal Church. We are a growing community of believers committed to bringing hope and building lives. We pray today's message is a blessing to you. Oh, praise the Lord today. Amen. I'd like to ask you today to get with us to get ready to get in the word of the Lord with us today uh, we have a very I believe important topic to talk to you about perhaps today will be a little bit more teaching than preaching but uh, we want to come to you today with this thought how we got the Bible how did we get this blessed book amen I want to tell you it didn't just appear but God had a plan I said God had a plan and I'm so thankful for the word of the Lord that we have today and I want to I want to point you to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 19 through 21 to get our launch point today 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 we have also a more sure, sure word of prophecy. A sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this verse that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Why is that? For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So today we're going to be talking about how we got the Bible. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this particular time that we are gathered with you today. Lord, I pray, dear Lord Jesus, that you would help me. Lord, help me to begin to share this with your anointing, for indeed your word is already anointed. Lord, it has been uh, the word of God and survived so many obstacles, criticisms and fights and attack, and yet it still stands. We're going to give you praise for it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The Lord bless you. You can be seated. I hope you today will, will just ride with me, hang with me. Might need to buckle up. We're going to be going pretty quickly today through our, our talk to you and our lesson to you. The Bible has been attacked, as we have stated previously, ridiculed, maligned, and it has been uh, attempted to be discredited more than any other book in the history of man, more than any other book. Satan tried to change it. That didn't work. Rome tried to burn it. That didn't work. Governments have banned it. That hasn't worked. Atheists have mocked it. That hasn't worked. Secularists have discounted Universities have denounced it, yet it still stands. If it isn't the word of God, then why all the, why all the attack? Why all the upset folks that says we need to get it changed? Mm. If the Bible is so wrong and full of errors, then why has it survived? Why has it made it? The Bible could only survive the attacks from the pits of hell and from so-called professors and scholars. Amen. By divine preservation, it has survived. By divine preservation. No other book reveals the condition of the world of man like the Bible. It answers the most pressing questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Amen. What will happen to me when I die? 
The Bible gives us the most comprehensive, and we talked about this recently, about the Bible being so comprehensive and cohesive. If you're here Tuesday night, we talked about that. The, 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 the constitution of the king, the Bible explains human nature, evil. Today, there's such a redefining of evil. Really, to goodness, I want to say, regardless of your political persuasion, I, I get livid when somebody tries to compare a present-day politician in America to Hitler. My dad fought in the war against Hitler. My dad happened to be among some of the very first ones to go in the concentration camps. Before Germany turned it over to the Allied forces, my dad drove a army doctor into several concentration camps, saw firsthand the atrocities that filtered down from this rascal called Hitler, but the Bible still survives. <clears throat> the Bible not only tells us about evil, it tells us about the redemption from evil. It's where we learn about sin. You want to shut somebody down, you just mention sin and they go ballistic. But it's also where you talk about salvation and human free will. I'm thankful that the Lord has given us a free will. What a powerful entity that that is. The Bible teaches us about the one true and holy living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. He is one Lord. And we're to love him with all of our heart. Amen. That is the essence we find in Scripture. We we find Father in creation, Son of redemption, the Holy Spirit working and emanating in the church. It is the Word of God. Look at Psalm chapter 119 and verse 60. The Word is true from the beginning. Look at that. The Word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. What is he talking about? The word has its beginning with God. Therefore, every one of his words have the righteousness to judge and endure and endure and endure forever. From Genesis to Revelation, his word is true. Let's look at Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. Through seven, Psalm 12, six and seven, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Notice what he said, thou shalt keep them in verse seven. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them. You're going to preserve them. So if the book is divinely inspired, then the preservation of the book is divinely protected. We cannot believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture without the divine intervention of keeping it until it has arrived to us. So here's what I know is that if it has survived all of these years as being the divine word of God, then there is not one translation that is erroneous. There is not one paraphrase that is particularly out of order. There is not one thing that can be said from any professor in university or Hollywood movie such as Da Vinci Code. There's not one thing that can be done to discredit the word and destroy it. He, it is under divine preservation. Right. Yeah. My, my, why wouldn't I want to love this book? Mm. Thou shalt preserve the kingdom of darkness has worked overtime in attempting to stifle and discredit the word of God. Let's look at the next slide. I want to talk to you about something called the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture. This is an interesting phrase. Last Tuesday, we talked about how it is accurate that you can trust the Bible through logic and spiritual reasoning. You can trust the authenticity of Scripture. And again, if you look at the word authority, the authority is based upon the author. That's where we get the word authority. So if the author has authority, then the book has authority. But how, and we, we looked at how we uh, uh, can trust the Bible. So today I want to talk about how do we get this? How did we get this thing we call the Bible, this holy book, the Bible? The Bible we have today didn't just appear. Remember what we talked about. The books were written over a period of 1,500 years. 
The process of compiling the Bible is substantial and divinely ordered. The Spirit of God not only supervised the writing of it, he oversaw the compiling of it, the development of it, and the continuation of it. The, canas- uh, uh, the canon of Scripture refers to the principles and process of recognizing which books were inspired and then includes them in the Bible. So when we say the canon of Scripture, we're talking about a process about how the books were added. Why didn't they add some and why were some taken away or why did they put these in? Well, let me talk to you about that just for a little bit. The word canon is derived from the Greek word K-A-N-O-N, which means rod, reed, or ruler. The corresponding Hebrew word, K-A-N-E-H, is an Old Testament word meaning a measuring rod. So, canon is the study of the recognition and collection of the books given by God, inspired by God. Canon, and the process of canon, addresses which books and which books should not be added we find that John MacArthur made this, this thing, and in, in, in this I agree with him. The term was used in many ways in grammar as a rule of procedure in chronology, as a table of dates in literature, as a list of books or works that would correctly be attributed to a given author. Eventually, the term canon was used to refer to the completed list of, by, of books given by God to man. So today, when we use the word, canon of scripture we're actually saying the bible is complete and accurately compiled if you're making notes that's what canon i want you to define as canon in your notes today we're saying that the canon of scripture is the statement and the test that shows us that the bible is complete and accurately compiled that's why you have to be careful when somebody comes along and says i got a new book to the new testament Sorry, Joseph Smith. Okay. So we look at canonization and we find that inspiration comes before canonization. A book must be recognized as inspired before it can be determined determined as canon of Scripture. It's not that it was made part of Scripture and then somebody tagged it inspiration when it is not. In their book, uh, uh, Dr. Norman L. Geyser and William E. Nix wrote in a book, a great book, From God to Us, they said this, Inspiration is the measure by which the Bible received its authority. Canonization is the process by which the Bible receives its acceptance. Inspiration speaks of authority. Canonization speaks of accepting and going through the process. It's not that you just go out and pick a book and say, I think that all would be in the Bible. It was a process over time, just like the writing. Let me give an example about some uh, passion of scripture where, where Paul says and, and speaks about being authorized by God to write. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37. Amen. On our next slide, you will find it says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that, look at this, the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul is declaring that what he is writing in this place is divinely inspired. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. But there must be tests to back that up. You can't just say that. It must be backed up through some tests, and we'll, we'll get back to that. Look, look at uh, uh, slide 10. Let's go to the next slide, the canon of Scripture. You have to have evidence. Here we find that, first of all, inspiration before canonization, and then there must be evidence from the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, regarding the canonization process. Look at how the Jews treat the sacred writings. Look at the meticulous nature, and we'll get into this in more detail in a little bit. Uh, Look at the the way they handled scriptures. The Jews already had compiled what they believe as the Old Testament 
through the same processes of canonization. Amen. They placed the book of the law inside the Ark of the Covenant, giving it the most sacred observance. By putting it there in the Ark, they are declaring this is God's book. This is the writing from the Lord, Deuteronomy 31, 26. New Testament evidence. New Testament evidence. You will find that the New Testament attests to the canon of the Old Testament. So the New Testament says and refers to the Old Testament to show us that it is indeed authorized and accepted. Let me show you. Let me show you. Luke 24, 44. Now, I didn't do it up here, but in my Bible and yours, it's probably these words are in red. So, you know, for those of you that have got to, those of you watching or listening on podcast, you, you, you're only going to accept the words if they're in red. Well, these are in red. Tag it. Luke 24 and 44. <clears throat> these are the words, Jesus said, which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, Concerning me, what's he doing? He's going back and pointing to the, the veracity of the Old Testament scripture. He said, let me tell you that I believe the law of Moses and I believe in the prophets and the psalm because they speak of me. So Jesus verified the timetable of the Old Testament. Not just the veracity of the Old Testament, the timetable of the Old Testament. Let me show you one that just blows my mind. Let's look at the next verse. Luke eleven fifty one. Read it carefully. From the blood of Abel unto, Jesus is speaking here, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. It looks like it's just a, we're not going to get into exactly what he's dealing with, but I want to show that he speaks of the first martyr of the Old Testament and the last martyr of the Old Testament. It, that don't light your fire. Maybe something later on will. But I want to tell you what Jesus is saying. I believe and gave validity to the Old Testament scripture. Not just timeline, but he showed in this beautiful verse, the first martyr and the last martyr, very powerful. All right, let's go to slide 13. Again, the canon of scripture. We've got to have the inspiration before canonization, Old Testament canon evidence, New Testament canon evidence, and then also historical evidence. Somebody say Praise the Lord. When we consider historical, when we consider the Old Testament canon, one historical person I want to show you is, is Josephus, a well-known historian, a well-known historian. And let me read from his writings. He was in the first century. Anybody know what the first century is? 1 A.D. That first century. That's, that's, mm, praise the Lord. I think I have it in my notes, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. But I want to clarify, so if you do not know what B.C. is, when we use the dates B.C., or we use the dates A.D., we say 500 B.C., that is very easy to remember. One simple way is before Christ. A.D. means after his birth, not necessarily, we say after his death, but it's really after his birth. The birth of Jesus Christ, amen, became the benchmark for time that we've kept for thousands and thousands and thousands of Okay. So when I say in the first century, Josephus is a contemporary with Christ. He said, quote, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. Speaking of the Old Testament. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter, listen to this, he says, a syllable, and it is an instinct with every Jew from the day of birth to record them as the decrees of God to abide by them and if need be cheerfully die for them. 
Josephus limited in his writings the Old Testament books to 22. But what he did is he joined Ruth to Judges and Lamentation to Jeremiah, taking an account that the Jews are, are, are taking an account that Jesus enumerated their books differently. The 22 books mentioned by Josephus a hundred years after Christ are the same as the 39 that we have today. So Josephus in the first century, within the first century, says the veracity of Scripture, and yet now here we are many, many years later, same books, not added to, not taken away, not been diminished, still the same, and thank God for the Jews that have provided for us the foundation for understanding God. We find that Josephus believed that the canon extended from Moses to Artaxerxes, which was the same time that we have today. Josephus called the text of these books sacred. No one has dared to cancel or alter it to, since to every Jew these writings are, quote, the decrees of God, unquote. But does age alone determine canonization? A book is not considered just simply canon or match canon merely because it's old. We find the, the, the Bible speaks about some old books. Uh, you will find in Numbers chapter 21 verse 14, the books of the wars of the Lord. You will find in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13, the book of Jashur. You will see that there is evidence of old books. There is evidence that books were considered aged, but it's not just age that makes them a part of canon. Daniel quickly verified the inspired writings of Jeremiah, but not calling the books of wars, amen, inspired, nor the books of Jasher inspired. But he looked at, Daniel said in 9 and 2, that the books of Jeremiah were inspired. Peter verified the veracity of Paul's writing in the New Testament. So we see that canon scripture is not determined by language, not determined by age, not determined by religious value. It's not determined by a church, not even by the uses of a church. First and foremost, canon must be based on inspiration. How do we prove that? Let me give you a quote from W.H. Griffith Thomas who wrote the book, How We Got Our Bible. He says, the sixth article of the Church of England describes a canonical book as one, quote, of those authority there was never any doubt in the church. No doubt whatsoever. Amen. We must, he goes on to write, observe that the reference is to the authority and not to the authorship. The authority. It is illogical, brothers and sisters, to think that God could write an inspired book but he didn't inspire the collection and the selection of them in the process of canonization. All right, let's go to the next slide, 14. I want to talk to you about four ways that determine canonicity. Four ways that determine canonicity. Number one, was it written by a prophet of God? This is primarily speaking about the Old Testament text now, but was it written by a prophet of God? Every book of the Bible claims either explicitly or implicitly to be a book that says, thus saith the Lord. Every one of them. If the book, if the early scholars could not establish divine inspiration, then the book was not included. Was it written by a prophet of God? Is there a thus saith the Lord reference to that book? If there is not, it was kicked aside. Okay. Number the second one, four ways to determine canonicity. Did the writer have God-given credentials? Every writer was a prophet or they function in the authority as God-appointed messenger. We find that in the New Testament, the apostles carried unique credentials of authority and unique gifts. We would even look at David and we say, well, he was a king, but he was also a prophet. Was he not? Moses was said to be the greatest prophet there was. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, we find that the veracity and the canonicity of Scripture was based on their, their being a prophet and also their God-given credentials. Does the book tell the truth about God, 
man and history. Is it accurate? Does the Bible tell, or does the book that under consideration tell the truth about God, man, and history? A book with factual or doctrinal errors would not be inspired. So when they would come across an error, whether about a historical fact or about a town or an issue or an event, they would say that's not inspired and they would kick it aside. It doesn't meet canon. The Bereans accepted Paul's writing after that they verified it with Scripture. So they matched Scripture to Scripture to see is this uh, uh, fit the, the perimeters of canonization. Let, let me show you a powerful, just a powerful Scripture in the book of Acts chapter 17. If we'll go to that slide, Acts 17 and 11. Look at this. How many remember uh, Paul being in a place called Mars Hill? All their, their uh, witchcraft and all their junk. Look at this. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. It's a bad thing to sit in a congregation and just hear the preacher preach and not go verify it for yourself. They did it then. We need to do it now. Somebody say amen. Go and study them to see whether the things were so. Therefore, after they said that things were so and verified it, therefore many of them believed also of the honorable women which were Greeks and of men not a few. Hallelujah. Why? Because they went and verified with the Old Testament scripture that Paul was saying the correct truth. All right. Go back to that slide with four ways to determine. All right. Let's go ahead to slide 16. I want to show you again the four ways to determine canonicity. And the last one is, was it accepted by people it was written to? Was it accepted by people it was written to? If the book was received, collected, and used by God's word by those to whom it was originally given, then its canonicity was established. The writings of Moses were immediately accepted by Israel as the word of God. Paul's epistles were immediately received by the churches to whom they were addressed, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The process of canonization of Scripture did not fall on a select council. Listen to this. It did not fall on a particular group or an organization and thank God on a church organization. Canonization was not done by the Roman church. Canonization occurred after years of sifting and scrutiny of, on multiple levels. So you had this group that would take through scripture and they would check it with canonization. Years later, you come along and there'd be another group that would do the same thing. Years later, there'd be another group that would come along and do the same thing. And I want to tell you, it doesn't matter who they were, but if God inspired it, then he also can follow it to its conclusion. <clears throat> Again, quoting from uh, Dr. Geisler and William Nix. This is what they said. Quote, no ecumenical committee was commissioned to canonize the Bible. The Da Vinci Code, the bestseller by Dan Brown, is wrong when it charges Constantine with determining the canon of the New Testament. The Church Council of Nicaea in 325 did not even discuss the matter, and their vote was rather on the deity of Christ and not on canon. Anybody remember their vote on the deity of Christ? For it was in 325 that the, the, the Trinity and the persons of, of the Trinity were introduced by Constantine. And according to Dr. Geisler and William Nix, they didn't even discuss the canon of Scripture. Why? They were not a good group to discuss it. All right, slide 17, title, throw that up. I want to talk to you about there's a couple questions that people have when it, when it comes to the canon of Scripture. Y'all with me today? I realize that this Sunday morning we're not swinging from the chandeliers, but I'm going to give you something to swing from the chandeliers from when you know the Word of God and how you got it. Somebody say amen. 
So some Yahoo will say, well, what about Esther? What about the book of Esther? Some have purported that Esther should not be in canon scripture because of the absence, the conspicuous absence of the name of God. How can a book that does not bear the name of God be described as the word of God? Here's some things to consider. While the name of God may be absence, his presence and providence is all over the book. His presence and his providence. The story of Esther is about a people that is disconnected from their homeland and having all kinds of attacks and problems. But I want to tell you the message that I see. I'm off my notes right now, but I'm going to preach a little while. Is that Esther shows us, even when you're disconnected, even when you're in a place where your life is turned upside down, God's hand and God's providence will be upon you. Listen to this about Esther. The Old Testament canon was complete some 400 years before Christ, and it included Esther. And he accepted it. He, being Jesus, accepted it in all the law, the prophets, and the poetry of Scripture. So the canonization of Scripture by the Hebrews was full to the end 400 years before Christ, and Christ says, I accept it. So if he accepted it, I'm accepting it. The protection of God is present in the book of Esther. Therefore, the pronouncements of God on his people were unquestionably present in Esther. Amen. The book was a, uh, uh, this book was accorded a permanent place in Jewish canon long before and Christ accepted. The fact that some canonical books were called into question provides assurance that the canonizers were discriminating. And I'm going to show you how they were discriminating. One of them is the evidence of the apocryphal. Anybody ever heard of the apocryphal books? The missing books? All right, I'm going to talk to you about them. Many Jewish scholars believe that the final compilers of the Old Testament canon were part of the school of the scribes founded by Ezra. Ezra, after the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon. So Ezra formed what then became the Pharisees and, and, and a sect of group that would be uh, called scribes. Everybody say scribes. There were attempts to add to the list of Scripture, but they didn't meet canon standard. And efforts to add to Scripture continued throughout time. But the standard for sacred texts had already been established. Some wanted to add about 14 non-canonical books known as the apocryphal. And here are some reasons why Jewish scholars and scribes would not allow the apocryphal into the Old Testament canon. Here's one num number one. They were written long after the canon of the Old Testament had been completed and closed. Number two, they lacked the prophetic quality to put the stamp of inspiration as, as other scripture. Number three, none of the apocryphal writers claimed divine inspiration and some openly disclaimed it. Kick it out. Apocryphal books contain errors or facts teaching questionable ethics and inconsistent doctrines. For example, these books justified suicide and assassination, and they taught praying for the dead. Kicked it out. It wasn't consistent doctrinally. There's a reason why the Lord said to this book, don't add to it and don't take away from it. If I say something is sin and it's not in the book, I'm adding to now, it may be a cultural thing for us to follow, but it's not heaven and hell sin. Oh, my, my. I wish I could preach to you all day about that to understand I don't add to, but neither do I take away. So that's why we don't have books that are known as the apocryphal. There are some denominations that accept them, but the vast majority do not. As canon scripture. Let's go to slide 18. The New Testament tests for canonicity. W.H. Griffin, again, if I may quote for him how we got our Bible. He said, the books of the New Testament were regarded as marked by apostolic origin. 
This may have been authorship or sanction, but there is no doubt that the primary standard of verification and acceptance was the belief that these books came from apostolic men, either apostles themselves or their associates, so that the ground of canonicity was not merely the age or the truth or the helpfulness of the book, but beneath and before these characteristics because they came from uniquely qualified instruments of God's will so that the authority is not that of a volume but of a revelation. The revelation did not come to exist because of the canonicity but canonization because of the revelation. What is he saying? Like inspiration, revelation preceded canonization. Before they can accept the book, there had to be inspiration and revelation and specific authority upon the author. I, 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 I want to say this to you, and if, and if I can encourage you to write this down. The Bible is not an authorized collection of books, but a collection of authorized books. Say that again. The Bible is not an authorized collection of books, but is a collection of authorized books. The, the, the simpleness of that uh, uh, comparison there, it may seem like it's, not, it's just semantics, uh, but canonicity simply recognizes that something is already inspired. Inspiration before canonization. But canonization verifies inspiration. I want to talk to you about the, these tests for canonicity in uh, the New Testament, all right? Number one, was the book authored by a recognized apostle or some way, someone closely associated with that apostle? <clears throat> Think about that. Mark was not an apostle, but he was closely associated with Peter. Luke who was possibly a Gentile, wrote at least two books in the New Testament, and they were, what are they? Luke and Acts. Okay, so Luke was the transcriber and the historian that's writing the book of Acts and the gospel of the book of Luke. But what happens is that he's traveling with Jesus and he's traveling with Paul. So he's not an apostle, but he's closely associated and anointed by God to write, amen, the scriptures. <clears throat> the second test for canonicity of the New Testament. Was the book consistent with apostolic doctrine? False doctrines abounded in the early years of the church. Amen. So they had to be careful to make sure that what Peter was preaching and what the, that's why they didn't accept a bunch of new apostles coming on the scene. Here today, when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, you will find that it speaks about the fivefold ministry, and in there is apostles. The difference is there are foundational apostles, and now there are missional apostles. Foundational apostles had the authority of Jesus, his disciples, and those closely related to them to write the inspired word of God. And Paul is a unique man because he was struck down on the road to Damascus and God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But we will find that, that, that uh, uh, in the New Testament, there were foundational apostles and today they are missional apostles. They don't write another inspired book they merely go and launch what the book already says they go out and they take what is in the book and they bring into a mission right now I believe with all of my heart, our bishop, amen, is an apostle. I believe he operates in the gift of the apostle. His works have traveled all over the world. He has found in more things than you and I will ever know, been to more places than you and I will ever see. What is he doing? He is not starting a new doctrine because he is not a doctrinal apostle. He is a missional apostle. For when the book was completed and canon scripture was closed, it was closed so that there is no judgment 
choker out there that could come along and preach something completely different and say he's inspired by God to write it and equate it with scripture. Was the book consistent with apostle doctrine? Joseph Smith's book is inconsistent with the apostles' doctrine. Therefore, it should be ignored. Number three, the third part was, was the book read and used in the early church history? Did the early Christians accept it, read it, read it in worship? (laughs) I heard something the other day I had not heard before, and I must say I am not verified and have not verified this, so I say it uh, without that in mind, but... uh, I heard this the other day, and I'm going to I'm going to dig to find out if it is true. And I'm going to the, the text right now to look it up. Somebody say, "Lord, help, Pastor." Thank you. I need it. In the book of Philippians, a powerful book of Scripture. I feel like I'm on 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 time clock here. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That scripture where it says, who be in the form of God, thought of not robbery, Philippians chapter 2. I don't have this on my notes. Don't worry about throwing it up. Uh, who being in the form of God, thought of not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, took on the form of a servant. You know that, that scripture being in the, found, in the fashion of a man, and wherefore God hath highly. That is, this particular Bible teacher says, that was an early song that they sung in the church. What does that teach you? It's good to teach songs that have doctrine in them. Talking about heaven, talking about Jesus. Hallelujah, the the mighty God is Jesus, the Prince of Peace is he, the everlasting Father, the King eternally. Amen, that's not inspired scripture, but I want to tell you, God took inspired word and he taught the church and they read it, they worshiped with it, and they participated and they lived it in their daily life. Okay, number four, was the book used and recognized by the next generation of churches? Did the early church leaders, how did they treat that? How do they treat that? You will find historical writers that will say that the church leaders did not force certain books did not force certain books on the early church. No man or group or men made a certain book canonical. God determined the canon. Man discovered it through long and steady use. Amen. To find out, (laughs) he inspired it. We better use it. All right, let's go to the next slide. Slide 19, please. Y'all, I'm preaching a 747 message and I need to cut it down into a Cessna. I don't know if I can. Last Tuesday, we discovered you can trust the Word of God. You can trust the sacred writings. The story how we got the Bible is amazing and adventurous. It was a meticulous and tedious process. The transmission of manuscripts is a story of one generation passing it on to the next generation. Let's talk to you about just some early writings, some early writings about this. Thank you, Sister Bev, for helping me out today. I, I threw our curveball and put a bunch of slides up, and uh, thank you for helping me with this today. Again, I, I just simply want to mention this to you. I knew it was on my notes, but I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to mention it a little earlier, but let me get in detail. When we say A.D. or B.C., we're speaking about a distinction of history based on the birth of Jesus Christ. Many think A.D. stands for after death, but it really comes from the Latin phrase Anno Domini. I don't know if, you, if I said that right, but it means the year of our Lord. A monk by the name of Dionysius created a dating system that was based on the birth of Jesus Christ. He believed, and rightfully so, that history should be marked by the greatest event in human history, 
And all history after the birth of Christ was then called A.D., the year of our Lord, and before it is known as B.C., before Christ. Do you know there has been such a fight against that? But it still keeps on going on because ain't nobody like our Jesus. All right? The earliest known writings in history were discovered in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Archaeologists have discovered many clay writing tablets that date back to 3000 B.C. Hieroglyphics on tombs and temples and monuments date back even further than 3000 B.C. Early alphabetic scripts were known as pronto-synatic inscriptions dating back to 1500 B.C. were discovered only 50 miles from the traditional site known as Mount Sinai. This is significant because skeptics had formally held that Moses couldn't have been the writer of the five books of the Bible because writing was not known in Moses' time. You know, here's what our God does. He drops things like archaeologists finding right close to Mount Sinai that there was writings even before Moses, alphabetical writings even before Moses. What's he doing? He said, hey, y'all idiots. So we would have evidence historically and archaeological evidence of this. Let's talk about... uh, Let's talk about writing materials that the ancients had. Ancient people of Palestine uh, and adjoining countries adopted many kinds of material for writing process. The Bible itself makes reference to a number of these. Let's start off with stone. They wrote on stone. The Hammurabi, the 1750 BC, is one of the well-known Babylonian kings, set an upright stone monument so that any oppressed person might read his 250 laws and be granted justice. So they wrote on stones. Anybody know of anybody in Scripture that wrote on stones? Whew. They wrote on clay, the most common writing material in Mesopotamia. Moist clay was made into tablets, then written upon and baked in an oven to allow to dry in the sun. Ezekiel is said to write on this type of material, Ezekiel 4 and 1. Clay tablets were also durable, that half a million or more of them have survived to modern times. Mm. Aren't you glad he wrote it down? They wrote on wood. The Old Testament refers to writing on wooden rods and sticks. Uh, Wooden tablets uh, often had an inlay of wax which could be written upon or erased uh, on as occasion demands. You will find this in Assyria that had such tablets. uh, And even this was popular among the Romans. They wrote on metal such as gold, writing on the surface of gold. Ezekiel 28 and 36 tells us they did this. They wrote on potsherds or ostraca, amen, broken pieces of pottery that uh, the equivalent of modern day would be said to be scrap paper. They had post-it notes, broken pieces of pottery that were their original post-it notes, if you please. (laughs) Hallelujah. They wrote on something called papyrus, papyrus. All the other materials mentioned above have distinct disadvantage, bulky, heavy, difficult to transport, be hard to transport on a stone, the Old Testament. Some could only bear a few words. Papyrus plant produced a lightweight, flexible material that was excellent for writing. Job asked, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Chapter 8, verse 11. The Egyptians used papyrus as a writing in 3000 B.C. Papyrus paper could be made into rolls, and they called them scrolls. Papyrus, of course, is the original word for where we get the word paper. Amen. It is interesting to note another fact about papyrus is the word biblios, which is the Greek word for papyrus. Biblion, the related word, was the original word for papyrus roll. Biblia, the plural of multiple rolls, simply now we find it to mean the books. It is but another step to refer to the book as the books and then the book of sacred scripture. Thus the word of God itself goes back to the papyrus plant being written. Another thing they wrote on was leather and parchment. And I'm going to move on for the sake of time. Amen. Let's go to slide 20, the Old Testament transmissions. 
Let me again quote Bible scholar Norman Geisler. He said, the authentic writings produced under the direction of the authorization of a prophet or apostle called autographia are no longer in existence. What they wrote down is no longer in existence. As a result, they must be reconstructed from early manuscripts and versions of the Bible text. The manuscripts provided tangible and important evidence about the transmission from the Bible God gave to us. So God used something known as transcribers. Everybody say transcribers. Didn't have a Xerox copier. Couldn't scan it with their iPhone. So somebody had to meticulously write it all down. The earliest copies of Scripture date from the time of Ezra as the Jewish uh, scribes, traditions, and techniques began to emerge. These writings, these scribes were known, these writers, rather transcribers, were known as uh, sophorim from the 3rd century B.C. Under their leadership, Jews began to preserve at first by oral tradition and then in writing an enormous, enormous amount of the Torah or in other parts of the Old Testament that had been lost before, during, and during the Babylonian captivity. So there were transcribers that began to transcribe it. And I gave to you the list of, the, of some of them from the 2nd and 1st century. We got the Zogoth and the Tananim, 1st century AD, and then so forth and so on, down to the Masoretics. The Masoretics were so named because they preserved in writing oral tradition concerning the the correct vowels and accents and the number of occurrence of rare words of unusual spellings, they were the ones who gave each word its exact pronunciation and grammatical form. The Masoretics were so meticulous. Listen to this. They counted the times a letter appeared in a book. So if we would say the letter B appeared so many times in the book of Genesis, they knew that. They could point to the middle letter of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They could point to the middle letter of the Old Testament. So they would have to sit there and count every letter. And if they got to the middle and it didn't line up, they would toss it. I don't know what personality does that, but it sure isn't an otter. to sit there and meticulously write days and days on end. But thank God they did. Thank God they did. And when, I'll tell you another little cool thing about them. Whenever they would come, the Masoretics, when they would come to the name God, they would go and dip themselves in water to wash themselves before they would write it because they counted it so sacred. And then they'd go back and they'd write God in the text. Thank God for people over the history that did this. They created formulas so totals could be remembered. They, create, they counted everything to make sure the copies were without error. Let's go to the next slide, New Testament transmissions. <clears throat> the earliest books, especially the New Testament, were written on papyrus sheets. With constant use, the writings would last about a decade. God's word was not lost, even though the original autographs have perished. The early Christians made many copies of these precious apostolic messages. These copies of the New Testament in Greek are known as the manuscripts. Over 5,300 manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered. Not all of them contain the complete New Testament. Only few contain anything like what we see today as the New Testament in its totality. Most of the manuscripts do not uh, contain the entire New Testament simply because it would have been difficult to carry all of them and produce a copy of one big scroll. So they divided the manuscripts into four segments. The Gospels, the book of Acts and the general epistles, the Pauline epistles, and the book of Revelation. They were not all, you didn't find one particular manuscript, but you would find the 
Gospels all together. And you would find as they discovered Acts and general epistles all together and the Pauline epistles together and the book of Revelation together. Somebody say, God's got this. All right, next slide, important manuscript findings. I'm going to read through these as quickly as I can, but this, this ought to light your field on fire. The Jews had a, a, a deep conviction, amen, about not destroying any document that had the name of God in it. The Jewish synagogues around the world have storage places known as Genesis. Hordes of them have been found all over the world. Amen. It's particularly two of them I want to mention to you. They found it in Afghanistan, the Afghan Genesis. The Afghan genius of this collection is that thousands of Jewish manuscripts, fragments have been found in Afghanistan. Manuscripts in crude, writings in Hebrew, Arabic, uh, uh, Judo uh, Arabic, and Judo Persian, which were written in Hebrew letters. Some of them were thousands of years old. Amen. They found them in caves that the Taliban were hiding out in. In 2013, the National Library of Israel announced that it had purchased 29 pages from this catch of documents. What did they find? Writings of the Old Testament, veracity of the writing of the Old Testament, matching what we have today. Then the Cairo, in Cairo, they found a collection of some 300,000 Jewish manuscripts and fragments that again showed us the collections that they found in there, the writings of the Bible again and again. I mentioned to you about this last, last Tuesday night, but can I mention again in perhaps more detail? In March 1947, a young Arab boy happened upon one of the most remarkable historical findings ever while perusing a lost, or, or, or pursuing rather, a lost goat in caves seven caves, one and a half miles south of Jericho and a mile west of Dead Sea, he discovered some jars containing leather scrolls between the time of February, that time and February 1956. Eleven caves containing scrolls and fragments of scrolls were excavated. They soon discovered that the boy had found a library of religious sect of Jews known as the Essenes. I'd like to just shout with you, but I got to read this to you. The library was hidden away in caves around the outbreak of the first Jewish revolt, AD 66 and through AD 70. As the Roman army advanced against the rebel Jews, the Essenes were mentioned by Josephus and in other historical sources. The Essenes were a strict Torah observant, Old Testament observant, Messianic. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Some called them Baptist because they baptized. They were in the wilderness and they had a new covenant. This Jewish sect known as the Essenes, some of them had something they called a new covenant. Dr. Jeremy Lang has done some study and he has found that there have been evidence that Essenes, some of them at least were baptized in the name of Jesus and devoted followers of Christ. These are the guys that had been in inscribing and writing all this time while Rome was attacking. They stuck it away in a cave somewhere for a Bedouin shepherd boy to find over into the 1900s. From AD, early AD, first century AD, over to the, the 1900 AD to find, find these writings. And all scholars have identified the remains of about 825 to 870 separate scrolls. Fragments of every book of the Hebrew canon Old Testament have been discovered except for the book of Esther. There are now identified among the scrolls 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of the book of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the book of Psalms. Isaiah's scroll found relatively intact, a thousand years older than any other previous copy had it ever been discovered. In fact, the scrolls are the oldest group of Old Testament manuscripts ever found. One of the most curious things about the scrolls is one was a copper scroll discovered in cave number three. The scroll records about 64 underground hiding places throughout the land of Israel. 
that were hiding more evidence. The scrolls have revolutionized textual criticism of the Old Testament. All those scholars that were throwing things on the wall and it was sticking for a while now can't stick anymore. Because of the amount of time between the writings of the original manuscripts and modern times, it was assumed by critics of the Bible that there had to be, there had to be multiple mistakes in translation and in transition and in transcribing. The Dead Sea Scrolls shut their mouth like the mouth of lion. They found that Isaiah copy was from about 100 B.C. They found it. Why? It's because God said, I got you. I got you. It's not only divinely inspired, it is divinely preserved. What a debt we owe to the Jewish scribes for meticulously, carefully preserving the text. But it's God's power that kept it. So my question to you today in conclusion is this. If God can do that over centuries through dictators and kings and governments rising and falling. If he could do that over centuries and he could keep his word alive. I'll give you one other story that was presented to me by a Bible scholar who did the study and research about the arrival of the King James Version. If you want to find, fact check that, Anybody got a King James Bible in front of you? A Bible. I don't need a nap. I need a Bible. I need to know when the copyright is on that. When was the first edition? Anybody know when the first? If you, you can find that for me. When the first edition was given for the King James. Can I just bust somebody watching right now or somebody listening right now? The apostles didn't have the King James Version. So when we, we get all, I, now I believe it's the best version out there. I believe it's the best version I'm going to write. I'm going to read and I'm going to study it because it has, I believe, a really strong connection to the originals. You find it? No, that ain't right. 1611. There's the number I was looking for. 1611. That's 1611 A.D. All the other, we can get into the Septuagint. We can get into the different manuscripts and, and things like that, but that's for another time. But I want to show you something. For years, it was in Latin. For years, it was in Latin. And Latin became harder and harder to read. And, and the, the Roman church had put themselves in such a hierarchy of, uh, of mentality that only the priest could read the Latin Bible because it was so holy and so great and so wonderful. No one else could read it but the priest. So they created people that could not read the Bible. <clears throat> well, for the English-speaking people, King James in the 1600 authorized them to translate the Bible into English from Latin and Greek. So he set up the vote that they were going to vote on doing this with his parliament. And uh, so they set up this vote and they had a certain place that they were going to locate to do the vote. According to this historian and the scholar that I uh, spoke with years ago. And so they had this particular room that they were going to have this meeting to vote on the King James Version. And all the haters and the ones that were against this happening formed a terrorist. They had a terrorist intent and they set up explosive devices underneath that building where they were going to meet. But strangely, just a little while before going to that room, they changed the location. So if God could divinely inspire the book, he could divinely preserve the book, and then he can touch your life. If he can do all that, then he can't fix your headache and he can't fix your problems and can't fix your relationships and can't fix you. Amen. Can't heal your body. I'm not talking about the same God. Amen. Because the one I see that wrote the book and preserved the book is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that I can even ask or think. Hallelujah. Stand with me, please. 
Throw up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Hallelujah, it's the power of God. Look at Acts chapter uh, uh, 19. Acts chapter 19 and verse 18. And many uh, that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. They heard the gospel. They started repenting. And verse 19, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50 thousand pieces of silver. Just hold it right there. What it's talking about is sorcerers and witches that had curious works of witchcraft, expensive books, valuable books that they came and they laid them down and put them in a bonfire and lit it and began to burn it up. Didn't give it to a neighbor, didn't share it with a friend, didn't pass it on to family, but they took those books and burned them up. Next verse. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So we would say so effectively grew the word of God. Overcoming, powerful word of God. Let me just tell you today, if you didn't know anything what I've talked to, you, it just went past you. Maybe it was something that was not interesting to you. One thing you need to know is that there's power in this book. There's power in this book over other books, over other ancient writings. I want to tell you, Muhammad wrote his book, the Quran, 500 years after Christ. One man saying that he's one voice for his God wrote one book. Amen. I want to tell you what my God did. My God did. He took 40 authors over 1,500 years and he wrote a book that's cohesive. He wrote a book that is consistent. He wrote a book that you can pull a thread in Genesis and it'll pucker in Revelation. He wrote that kind of book. That's my God. My God in his book has withstood more criticism, more attack than anything ever leveled. You, you attack the Quran and they'll come shoot you. But I want to tell you what my God does is he defends himself. The gospel keeps going. Lies keep people right now are being baptized in Jesus' name in China, even though they're saying you can't do it. People are getting the Holy Ghost in China, even though they say you can't do it. In Muslim countries, all do you realize I just read about a revival happening in Iran? You're not going to hear that on the news media, but there's a revival happening in Iran. Why? It's about the book. It's about the book. Do you believe this book today? Do you believe this book today? Will you live by it? Do you trust it? Amen. Will you lay your life down for it? Hallelujah. This is the book of redemption. I wouldn't know who I was if it wasn't for the book. I wouldn't know how to be saved if it wasn't for the book. I wouldn't know about praying for healing and praying for my children. I wouldn't know about the blood of Jesus if it wasn't for the book. I wouldn't know about the mighty God in Christ. Amen. I wouldn't know about these things if it wasn't for the book. Thank you, Lord, for the book. Come on, let's praise him today. Thank you for joining us today. We pray you have been encouraged. If you would like more information about Medora Pentecostal Church, you can check out our website at www.medorachurch.com. Oh,